You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Now Yahweh spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, This is the statute of the law that Yahweh has commanded. Tell the people of Israel to bring you a red heifer without defect, in which there is no blemish, and on which a yoke has never come. And you shall give it to Eleazar the priest, and it shall be taken outside the camp and slaughtered before him. And Eleazar the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and sprinkle some of its blood toward the front of the tent of meeting seven times. And the heifer shall be burned in his sight. Its skin, its flesh, and its blood with its dung shall be burned. And the priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet yarn and throw them into the fire burning the heifer. Then the priest shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water and afterward he may come into the camp. But the priest shall be unclean until evening. The one who burns the heifer shall wash his clothes in water and bathe his body in water and shall be unclean until evening. And a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and deposit them outside the camp in a clean place. And they shall be kept for the water, for impurity, for the congregation of the people of Israel." It is a sin offering. And the one who gathers the ashes of the heifer shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. And this shall be a perpetual statute for the people of Israel and for the stranger who sojourns among them. Whoever touches the dead body of any person shall be unclean seven days. He shall cleanse himself with the water on the third day and on the seventh day and so be clean. But if he does not cleanse himself on the third day and on the seventh day, he will not become clean. Whoever touches a dead person, the body of anyone who has died and does not cleanse himself, defiles the tabernacle of Yahweh, and that person shall be cut off from Israel. Because the water for impurity was not thrown on him, he shall be unclean. His uncleanness is still on him. This is the law when someone dies in a tent. Everyone who comes into the tent and everyone who is in the tent shall be unclean seven days. And every open vessel that has no cover fastened on it is unclean. Whoever in the open field touches someone who was killed with a sword or who died naturally or touches a human bone or a grave shall be unclean seven days. For the unclean They shall take some ashes of the burnt sin offering, and fresh water shall be added in a vessel. Then a clean person shall take hyssop and dip it in the water and sprinkle it on the tent and on all the furnishings and on the persons who were there and on whoever touched the bone or the slain or the dead or the grave. And the clean person shall sprinkle it on the unclean on the third day and on the seventh day. Thus on the seventh day he shall cleanse him, and he shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water, and at evening he shall be clean. If the man who is unclean does not cleanse himself, that person shall be cut off from the midst of the assembly, since he has defiled the sanctuary of Yahweh. Because the water for impurity was not thrown on him, 
he is unclean, and it shall be a statute forever for them. The one who sprinkles the water for impurity shall wash his clothes, and the one who touches the water for impurity shall be unclean until evening. And whatever the unclean person touches shall be unclean, and anyone who touches it shall be unclean until evening. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 635 of this podcast. Today is Sunday, June 11th, 2023. And that was a reading of Numbers chapter 19, as well as a little bit of clocks, originally by Coldplay, so far as I know, but covered by the Dallas String Quartet. I found that music on Spotify and it tickled my fancy. And what I like to do, I don't know if everybody knows this, but what I like to do when I'm picking out music for the intro to the podcast is I like to try and find some word or phrase that's going to be related to what it is that we're talking about or the reading from scripture. And in this case, what we see is not just this issue of purification and laws concerning unclean and clean and cleansing rituals. But we also see something of cool down periods mentioned. Somebody who is unclean from touching a dead body is going to be unclean for so many days, or they're going to have water sprinkled on them after so many days. And then again, after so many days, And that's interesting if you think about it, because just remember if somebody has passed away that was close to you, there was a period of grieving. And that period was not an instant. It was a length of time. And maybe that period of grieving, when you think of that person, that period of grieving is still ongoing, but there was a period of intense grieving. There was a time after you found that they had passed where your sadness was at its peak or your anger in some cases was most intense or your depression even in the most extreme cases where the person was the closest to you, your depression was the deepest. And at a certain point, hopefully we all go through the grieving process for those we've lost or those we have seen pass who mattered to us, who we loved. At a certain point, it's a time 
for grieving, at a certain point, it's a time to move on from grief and to return to life and to resume life because life is still ongoing. If you're alive to grieve, well, then you're also at a certain point alive to continue on living. But we have here something of a different perspective, a different angle on death, the death of others, more to the point. Someone has died in the context of Numbers 19 when somebody in ancient Israel comes to this passage and they need to apply what it says because this is the law. Someone has died in their proximity and it quite possibly was a family member or a friend or a servant or a master. It was a neighbor. It was a friend. It was in some cases, I'm sure, a stranger that they just happened upon. But someone has passed, and there is a time for grieving, and there's a time to move on. But in the meantime, it's not all about you, and it's not all about me. And I think, speaking personally, when I've lost people over the years, my grandparents passing away, for instance, or in the case of miscarriages, when my wife has yeah, on a few occasions, not many, uh, when she's had a miscarriage, that's meant grieving for me. When her mother passed, there was some very intense grieving for my wife and for me as well, but especially for my wife because it was her mother. And speaking personally, part of how I was able to move on from grief in my own case was remembering that there is still life to be lived. I'm still alive. There are people who are depending on me who are still alive that I need to go and attend to. I need to go comfort them. I need to make sure that they're okay. I need to check on them. I need to provide for them. I need to protect them. I need to take them where they need to go. I need, I need to just be with them in some cases. But there's more to it than just other people. When God gives laws for purification, Yes, I'm sure that's part of it is God is instructing his people how to love one another well, but he's also teaching his people how to love him. And there is a certain sense in which grieving can interfere with our relationship with God. It can be appropriate to grieve and it can be appropriate to give that some time and at a certain point we are dishonoring God if we camp out in that depression, if we camp out in anger and in sadness and even in bitterness. That can take uh, a wrong turn. That sadness, that anger, that confusion can take a turn for bitterness where it becomes something of an accusation against God, a questioning of God's goodness turning into a denial of God's goodness. And so we don't want that. In fact, we very much need to not do that and not go that way. But here in Numbers in Numbers 19, here in Numbers 19, we have laws for purification that I would say, in my looking at them, encompass both. The first and greatest commandment, Jesus says, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. The second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And he says right after that 
in the gospel accounts, these two sum up all the law and the prophets, and that has to include Numbers 19. Love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself sums up Numbers 19 and laws for purification. I think this is something that we can miss too easily as Christians, and it's something that the outside world looking in on Christianity and just casually browsing Bible and Scripture can miss is that this is not just a to-do list. It's not just a, well, we don't want you to get bored here. (laughs) This will keep you busy for a while. The Bible, and Numbers 19 specifically, is not just something to occupy your time. And also, for that matter, it's not just somebody wants to control you. And that's another misconception, maybe especially for Americans in this day and age. We have a very secular mindset. We have a very therapeutic mindset. We have a very self-centered mindset. We have a very high value placed on self-esteem. And we think when we come to a passage like Numbers 19, we should race to say we're not under the Old Testament law. And in so doing, I think we miss something of the heart of God, something of the character of God, something of the holiness of God, and also something of what it means to be created in God's image. And that's all bound up in this as well, that God is teaching his image bearers, his people here, how to be better imitators of God, how to better bear his image. And so, yes, death is a part of this fallen creation. It's a part of what it means to be fallen creatures. And so death comes for those around us. And at a certain point, death comes for us as well. But when we're alive and others around us have died or are dying, what do we do then? Do we say death is a part of life? I've heard that, but I don't like it. I don't like it. It makes me uncomfortable. There's something about it that implies that this is the way it's always been. This is the way it always will be. It's important for us to remember that no, as a matter of fact, death came into the world through sin. And at a certain point, God is going to make a new heavens and a new earth, and he's going to cause death to be no more, sadness to be no more in his new heavens and his new earth. So no, actually, death is not a part of life. And it's interesting, I was just watching the Sunday special with Ben Shapiro sitting down to converse with James Lindsay. And I played for you actually an extended bit of audio, a lecture delivered in the EU parliament by James Lindsay here uh, several months ago, I think it's been at this point, where he's talking about Marxism. And he's talking about the way that Marxist thinking has infiltrated Europe and the U.S., via education, via the media, via pop culture. It has subtly and increasingly blatantly infiltrated our conceptions of justice and how we do economics and how we relate to the family and 
the broader community, how we relate to truth, how we relate to morality, how we relate to all of our choices. But James Lindsay is sitting down with Ben Shapiro, and he's talking about this dialectical mode that is common to Marxism, where you would say you have to understand thesis and antithesis in order to have a better idea of the unified whole. And there might be some truth to that, but where it breaks down is when we start to mix in the clean with the unclean and we say it's all clean, or we start to mix in wickedness with righteousness and we say it's all righteousness, or we start to mix in folly with wisdom and we say it's all wisdom. There's a sense in which you understand better what wisdom is and isn't by being presented with examples of folly. That's fair to say. There's a sense in which you understand better what righteousness is by seeing it contrasted with wickedness. But righteousness is not wickedness, and wisdom is not folly, and death is not a part of life. Uncleanness is not a part of cleanness. And yet, in some sense, we have to be told that there are situations in life where you're going to encounter a dead body. And what do you do if you are an Israelite and you are living in the camp of Israel? You're one of hundreds of thousands and you encounter somebody who's been killed with a sword or they have died due to natural causes or they've become ill and passed. What are you supposed to do if you come into contact with their body? You're supposed to give it some time. And then you're supposed to go through a purification ritual, which God has prescribed. And maybe the ritual in and of itself is significant because God has commanded it. And if you're doing it because you trust God, because you love God, then there's a power in that. Or maybe there's something in particular about a cool down period. Something it reminds me of is in the oil and gas industry, you have piping and various tanks and vessels, various equipment that's in service that you're producing the oil and gas and water through and in. And if at a certain point you decommission a piece of equipment or you need to replace some piping because it's leaking or it's corroded or what have you, if you remove that piping or that equipment from service, you have to have it tested for what they call NORM, which is naturally occurring radioactive material. You have to have it tested because as this crude oil is coming up out of the ground, it's bringing with it radioactivity from deep underground. And then as it's flowing through the piping and the equipment, it's transferring that radioactivity to the piping and the equipment. If you, by turn, then go handling carelessly the piping and the equipment, you can find that you are exposing yourself to radiation, radioactive isotopes. And so what you don't want to do is you don't want to handle this stuff carelessly without any regard for sanitation. You want to be wearing gloves and you want to wash your hands and you want to wash your clothes before you go hugging 
your wife and your kids because otherwise they can get very sick. You want to go through something of a ritual to decontaminate yourself. Because even though this is a good gift that God has given, even though this crude oil coming up out of the ground is valuable, it's useful, it's necessary, I would say, in the modern day, there are still dangers associated with it. And you don't want someone getting cancer because you didn't go through the proper ritual, because you were being careless, because you said, ah, I'm busy, or it doesn't matter to me. And so I think also, just like there can be a value, there can be a power and a significance and a meaning to going through a purification ritual as God has commanded it, when God has commanded it, after encountering a dead person, I think vice versa. If you don't go through that at all, if you say, I'm fine, well, (laughs) maybe you're only caring about yourself right now, actually. Is that possible? Is it possible that there's an analogy to if I'm working on an oil and gas site and I don't take the time to wash my hands, to wash my clothes, to decontaminate after interacting with chemicals that could make somebody sick. I'm fine. Yeah, but what about everybody else around you? What about your responsibility to your wife and your kids, for instance? And we see this actually with the grieving process or when somebody has gone through something of a traumatic event, they have engaged with sin in the world and it may not be their sin. It may be somebody else's sin or they have had to deal with death First responders, for instance, people who have served in the military, for instance, in some cases, people who work in very dangerous industries like oil and gas. If they have engaged with or encountered somebody who died and they go right back to work and they pretend that everything is fine and they don't need to talk about it, they don't need to take some time to process it, to think about it, to grieve, to get some help, to get some counseling maybe they're actually being unclean. Maybe there is a purification ritual that is needed for the sake of the people around them. Maybe, just maybe, for their relationship with God to not be fractured and strained and marked by bitterness. There has to be some kind of a purification ritual. Maybe that doesn't look like it does in Numbers 19 in the New Testament period, perhaps it's as simple as us going to God. But I do think even as Christians, regardless of whether we're under the law, there is wisdom to noting that this is something of the heart of God. This is God saying something about the nature of death and encountering death, what kind of an impact it can have spiritually, perhaps also physically. And what if this is a person who is sick And there's something of a quarantine that you're going through after having made physical contact. Let's say, for instance, to remove the body and to give a proper burial. Maybe there's something of a quarantining where we say, in case there were microbes or bacteria, in case there was some kind of an infection that this person died of, you don't want to give that to somebody else. You don't want to pass that on. You're going to need to take some time to rest and to be apart, and to process, and to let your body, as God designed it, work through these things. 
Let your heart and your mind, as God designed them, work through these things. Because actually, this is not no big deal. It's not the way that it was supposed to be from the beginning. Sin is an aberration. And it's a normal one in our context. But there will come a day when it is not a part of our lived experience. It will be nothing but a memory. And even there, how much will we stop to think about it as a memory? How much are we going to dwell on it in the new heavens and the new earth? There also, I think, we do well to look forward to an ultimate purification that God is going to give to his children, those whose names are written in the book of life. He's going to give an ultimate purification that is perfect and complete and eternal. But in this episode, I actually want to do a bit of a word study. This is going to be a little bit different, but this is the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show, and I want to talk about everything. And it just so happens this morning, I want to talk about pure. What does it mean for someone or something to be pure? If, for instance, Philippians 4.8 says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. If Paul tells us to think about whatever is pure, and he says, think about these things, and we can therefore conclude that there is such a thing as a pure thing, what is that? How about let's do a word study on the word pure in the Bible. If I look it up on the literal word app, a great free app you can download on your smartphone, I believe it's available on Android as well as the Apple Store. It's at least available on the Apple Store. If I look up the word pure in the NASB, in the literal word app, I see that it occurs in 98 verses. Most of those verses are in the Old Testament. 33 are in the Pentateuch. 13 are in the books of history. 28 in the wisdom and poetry. Five in the major prophets. Two in the minor prophets. In the New Testament, we see three instances in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. Seven in the Pauline epistles. Seven in the general epistles. So you can tell right off the bat, 17 in the New Testament, 33 in the Pentateuch. There's twice as many instances just in the first five books of the law as in the whole of the New Testament. There's nearly twice as many in the wisdom literature, in the poetry, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Psalms, Song of Songs, etc. But what is pure? What does it mean for something to be pure? If I look up this word, specifically the lexical definition, and I'll just go over to the Pauline epistles in the passage I just read for you, Philippians 4, verse 8. If I cross-reference this word pure, what I find is that in the Greek, the word is hagnos. First definition, free from ceremonial defilement. 
as in a condition prepared for worship. Second definition, holy, sacred, venerable. Third definition, as in the Old Testament, pure, chaste, undefiled, guiltless. And this can refer to persons and it can refer to things. A person can be pure. A thing can be pure. Pure primarily as winnowed, purged, first found in the ethical sense in the New Testament, sincere. So that is to say, not sarcastic, cynical, scoffing. Purity has something to do with being straightforward and being vulnerable, actually, in some sense. But then even I say that, I say vulnerable, and I am looking at it from the perspective of somebody who would say, well, if I say what I really mean, if I'm straightforward, if I'm direct, if I'm honest, if I open up my heart, then I'm being vulnerable. And what do we mean by that? We mean that the wrong person, a malicious person, a cruel-hearted person, an uncaring person, a mean person, might, if I open up my heart, try and stab a dagger into it. I'll be hurt. And so very often, that's what people will cite as a reason why they're very cynical. They're very bitter. They've been hurt. Once bitten, twice shy. So now they're a bit of a scoffer. And can I just suggest to you that being wise as serpents, harmless as doves, may need a closer look when we don't want to be vulnerable. Are we doing the latter part? Are we being harmless as doves? Or if we refuse to open up, we refuse to be, as we say, vulnerable? Are we in some sense hurting people around us who need us to be real with them? Is it possible that when we're scoffing, when we're cynical, when we're closed off, when we're always sarcastic about everything, we're actually depriving people around us of something that they need, a certain quality to the relationship that's needed for it to be healthy and for them to be whole? Is it possible that we're hurting them sometimes because they are vulnerable and that makes us feel nervous and insecure? By contrast, we have stopped being vulnerable and they're being vulnerable. And so we're going to try and snap them back into being as closed off as we are before we start to feel something before we realize we've lost something. Be wise as serpents. So, in other words, with regards to your heart, guard your heart above all things, for from it flow the wellsprings of life. That's wise. That's good. Note that people are not all (laughs) trustworthy. There are serpents for you to be as wise as. There are dogs to whom you don't want to give what is holy. You don't want to give what is pure, put it another way. There are swine who are not pure. If there is one word you do not associate with pigs, it is pure. They are unclean in the Old Testament law. You can't eat pigs. Don't eat them because they are unclean. When Jesus says, don't cast your pearls before swine, what he's talking about there is 
an impurity, an uncleanness of the heart, of the mind, of the conscience. It's not just you're wasting your time, which is something that we'll often say. And that might be leaving something out. Guard your heart from such people because it's not just a waste of time. What will they do after they trample on the pearl? They'll turn and try to tear you to pieces. They'll try and hurt you. So we recognize that, but we have to also recognize that just because there are serpents, there are swine, there are dogs, that doesn't mean that everybody is. And actually, as a matter of fact, if we bounce back into Philippians, where Paul would tell us, think on these things, whatever is pure, and when we realize that people and things can be pure or declared pure, and actually isn't that something of the default position relative interacting with a dead body anyways, in Numbers 19, there are other ways for someone to defile themselves. Don't get me wrong, but they become unclean. They're not unclean by default in the context of Numbers 19. Actually, the big idea is to put them back into a clean state. If they have become unclean, the big idea, what God wants to accomplish is not to just declare them unclean and move on. Sorry about that. Tough luck. Too bad. No, no. No, no. Those who are unclean, God wants to clean. He wants to cleanse. He wants to purify. He wants to make righteous, yes, but also he wants to make them pure and holy. And there's a lot of overlap there, but there's a distinction. You know, it's interesting because people who have been hurt, in my observation, very often don't just think of their experience as having been an isolated incident. If it stays with them for a long time, what have they actually done? As they carry it forward, they've said, this is how people are, how I was treated by this person. Well, that's how people are going to treat me because that's how people are. Now I know that that's how people can be. And so I'm just going to assume that's how everybody is. And if that's not how everybody is, if not all are serpents or swine or dogs, that's not a good assumption. That's not fair. That's not just. That's not wise. But the other thing, right, the other piece of it is if they hadn't guarded their heart before, what maybe got in before they closed up shop, before they locked it down? The idea that they were whatever this person treated them like. So if somebody treated them like garbage, now they don't just remember that that person treated them like garbage. Now they wrestle with, am I garbage? And if they've closed up their heart with that in there, well, now it's already in there. What are you, what are you keeping out? You know, there's the old saying, the barn doors are open and the cows have gotten out or are getting out. What about when things get into the barn and now they're in there? And the barn doors are closed. If you're trying to get them out again, you got to open up those doors and get them out and remove them. And that's part of what is in view here with purification. Just because we may not start from a place of uncleanness or impurity, and just because we might become unclean or impure through some kind of unnatural or deviant interaction with death 
or with sin or with folly. It doesn't mean that that's just what it is. Once it's locked in, that's what it is. And some people get the mistaken notion here also with regards to are people inherently good? And so what they'll say is, yes, people, I believe most people are inherently good. Yeah. And what do they mean by that? Do they mean good according to God's standard of good? I hope not because what we read in the word is all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so all have been made impure and unclean. And yet through the blood of the lamb, through the blood of Christ, we are cleansed from all unrighteousness. We are made clean. We're made holy. We're made pure again. And so there's the sense in which even having been made clean, we're in the world and we encounter corruption and we encounter sin and we still have a sinful nature. And so what do we do? What do we do with this idea of embracing purity or pursuing purity or thinking on what is pure? If we go back to the Old Testament, as I said, most of the references to the word pure in the NASB, according to the literal word Bible app on my phone, most of the references are Old Testament. The Pentateuch has 33 instances. Of those 33, 29 are in Exodus, which is interesting if you think about it, because the people of Israel have been 400 years plus in Egypt. What do they need after 400 plus years, 20 plus generations of living in Egypt? They need to be purified. And so what is God doing as he's bringing them out? He's teaching, he's correcting, he's disciplining, he's commanding, he's leading, he's providing, he's protecting, but he's also purifying them. What is God doing as he confronts rebellion and grumbling and murmuring and disobedience among the people? He's purifying his people. He's purifying individuals. He's also purifying this nation that was no nation that he is making his nation, his possession. If we look in the history in the Old Testament, we see five instances in 1 Kings. We see five instances in 2 Chronicles. We see one each in 2 Samuel, 1 Chronicles, and the book of Ezra. We have this idea in the books of Kings and Chronicles of the king needing to exemplify for the people righteousness. And if he does, then the people of Israel follow after the Lord and there's blessing and there's protection and there's provision and there's abundance and there's joy. And the Lord is pleased with that. And if the king follows after other gods, he leads the people into the worshiping of other gods. But what's interesting is we have several instances in first Kings of gold being referred to as pure. In fact, all five of the instances of the word pure in 1 Kings refer to gold. Overlaid it with pure gold, inside of the house with pure gold, of pure gold, of pure gold, of pure gold. And what does that mean? Pure gold is not mixed in with some other metal in a way that would devalue the gold. Pure gold is worth what gold is worth. It's not worth less because 
you have some lesser metal. Pure gold is all the way through gold. But then in 2 Chronicles, what do we see? 2 Chronicles 3.4, pure gold. 2 Chronicles 4.20, pure gold. 4.22, pure gold. 9.17, pure gold. 9.20, pure gold. Interesting. We come to the wisdom literature and Job has 10 instances of this word pure. And in Job, we see pure referring to character and who you are on the inside. Can mankind be just before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? And so we see here, purity relates to justice, doing what is right, what is fair. Job 8, 6, if you are pure and upright, surely now he would rouse himself for you and restore your righteous estate. Whether Job's friend needs to be corrected and prayed for and forgiven. (laughs) Nevertheless, the context of the conversation is to associate purity with your soul, with the center of your emotions and your reasoning. Job 11.4, for you have said my teaching is pure and I am innocent in your eyes. So we see that teaching can be referred to as pure, as in the teaching comes out of that center of your emotions and your reasoning centered on what is true and what is good according to God, what pleases God. Job 15, 14, what is man that he should be pure or he who is born of woman that he should be righteous? And so you have something of the question of is man inherently good? In fact, can man be good? This is wrestled with. It's being questioned. It's being challenged. Job 16, 17, although there is no violence in my hands and my prayer is pure. So your prayer also, similar to teaching, coming from a heart and a mind and a soul that is pure is in view. If we check out Psalms, we see in Psalm 12, 6, the words of Yahweh are pure words as silver tried in a furnace on the earth refined seven times. This refining process, you have to understand, this is of a piece with how gold or any metal, for that matter, comes to be pure. Naturally occurring in the earth, it's going to be all mixed up, all mixed in with other minerals. And so you harvest that ore, you mine that ore, and then what do you do? You heat it up, you melt it down, you sift it, you separate it, you put the pure gold over here, and you put the dross, the impurities, the trash over there. And then you make something out of the pure gold. That's what the words of Yahweh are. As silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. It's very thorough. It's completely thorough, actually, as a matter of fact, because the number seven is the number of completion. Psalm 1826 With the pure you show yourself, this is referring to God, pure. And with the crooked you show yourself astute. (laughs) Interesting. So here again, we have something of the idea that when we're called to be wise as serpents, harmless as doves, we're being imitators of God. God is pure towards the pure and towards the corrupt, 
the crooked, the wicked. God shows himself to not be naive or ignorant or slow to act, as some count slowness, but he's astute. He knows what's up. He will deal with it in the time of his choosing, in the manner of his choosing. He's patient, but also he is definitely aware. Psalm 24, 4, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully, will what? Ascend into the hill of Yahweh, stand in his holy place. So we see that purity is a precondition for this fellowship with God who is pure. Do we want to have a proper view, a proper relationship, a proper affection for, understanding of God? If so, we need to be cleansed from all unrighteousness. And what's interesting too, in the context of the passage, Numbers 19, we see this idea that someone who has become unclean and they have not gone through the cleansing ritual, the purification ritual, if they defile the tabernacle of Yahweh. They were commanded to cleanse themselves, but if they don't and they disobey and they ignore that, they are to be cut off from Israel. Not only are they cut off from Israel for a short time, this is a persistent judgment. They are no longer part of this people because God wants his people to be pure and to be clean and to be righteous, and to be holy, for he is. And so we have, again, this idea of purity as being without blemish, without spot, without wrinkle, without defect, because God is. Now let's consider in the Gospels. There are only three instances of the word pure in the NASB, and they occur in Matthew, Mark, and John, one each. Matthew 5, 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This must be a category of people who do exist, if Jesus is referring to them. Now, how does someone become pure? Or if they have been unclean, if they've been made unclean, how do they become clean again? Christ can make them clean. Christ can give them a pure heart. And then what does he say? He says, those who are pure in heart, will see God. So we have in view again the idea that the heart matters. The center of our affections and our reasoning being pure matters to God. Mark 14.3, while he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial, a very costly perfume of pure nard, and she broke the vial and poured it over his head. So we have not just gold that can be pure, and not just the immaterial. And again, think of Philippians. Paul says, think on these things. So a heart can be a thing, and it can be pure. Think about what it means to have a pure heart and to see God. If you have a pure heart, you will see God. That's great. But also, things, objects, materials can be pure. Gold can be pure. Silver can be pure. Nard here is a perfume. It's a fragrance. It has a beautiful, pleasant aroma. And it's it's expensive in this case. 
there would have been a lot of saving up to buy this. The fact that she breaks the vial, the container, she breaks it and pours it over his head is to say she's not keeping any back. She's not reserving some for herself. She bought it entirely to anoint the head of Jesus, to bless him, to honor him. John 12, 3, a parallel passage. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. And what's curious here, by the way, is that there's a rebuke that follows. Verse 4 in John 12, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, so he's already now in this passage intent on betraying Jesus. And also you've got to think probably convicted by this show of love and adoration and respect and reverence for Jesus by Mary. Judas Iscariot said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Now, he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Therefore, Jesus said, let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. And there's several possible meanings. This is a very compound, complex rebuke, I would say, because it gets at several things all at the same time. One, Jesus knows he will be betrayed, and he knows that he will be arrested, tried, flogged, crucified. He will die and be buried and rise again on the third day, just as it was written. Jesus knows this. He also knows that Judas is the betrayer, and his corrective towards Judas, you might say, perhaps falls under the category of casting pearls before swine. What's the exception? Mary, for instance. Us, for instance. To let it pass without comment, without a corrective, without a rebuke of Judas might give the wrong idea that, yeah, you know what? That's true. That's true. This is money that could have been given to the poor. That's right. I don't know what to do now. Maybe I should take it back, see if I can sell it. All the while, What we know, maybe Mary didn't know, that Judas always gets his cut. Any money box, monies, that would include this expensive nard would be ripe for pilfering by him. He's not pure-hearted. The nard here is pure, and it's actual nard, by the way, for those who want to just psychologize everything and spiritualize everything and make make it all symbolic. Yes, it can be symbolic and psychological and spiritual and physically this was actual material nard and it cost real money that someone had to do real work to save up. And it's not that Judas is wrong that the money could have been given to the poor. It's that it's irrelevant. It's that she has chosen the better thing. What's curious here is you have the contrast centering on pure nard, in the one case, having been devoted to 
preparing Jesus for burial and highlighting that Mary has a pure motive. That she does this, she does it from a pure heart. Meanwhile, Judas does not have a pure heart. And so the words that he speaks are corrupt. Mary doesn't say anything here. She doesn't speak. She just does this. Mary just does it. And it says, she wiped his feet with her hair. This is a very intimate, very vulnerable, as we might say, act. It's a very vulnerable act, which, as we would say, somebody who's corrupt, who is malicious, who is selfish, is happy to seize on as a way of promoting themselves. You've got to think part of what Judas is responding from is that conviction. So he's trying to make himself feel better because he cares about the poor. Now, of course, yeah, he takes his cut, right? He manages the money. He takes his cut. That's fair. That's normal. Everybody does it. Heaven knows the tax collectors do it. So why not, right? Why not, Judas? There've got to be some perks and benefits. I mean, there's a lot of risk, right? There's a lot of risk involved in following Jesus. Of course, he's going to take his cut. Why not? People are already accusing Jesus of gluttony and drunkenness, and maybe there needs to be a retirement fund, a little something to buy a nice seaside home with, to live comfortably if this all falls apart, which it would seem it is falling apart, in part with Judas's help. He's going to profit from that as well. He was a liar from the beginning. He was dishonest. He was disingenuous. And so why was he in the mix? And I'll admit here, I'll just be completely vulnerable myself and open my heart here. This is one of the things that I struggle with is when I encounter these kinds of people in the context of the church. When I encounter people who have encountered these kinds of people in the context of the church, I sometimes wonder why, Lord, is this person here? How long? Has this person been here? Why are they in this position where they can do this harm, where they can bring defilement, where they can sabotage and betray and hurt? And the simple answer is God knows. He is astute. And the pure-hearted will see God. That's the simple answer. And that's part of why I believe Paul says, think on these things, because Here's the thing. If you think on things that are pure, you're more likely to be pure-hearted. It'll be easier anyways. If you're meditating on what is corrupt, what is vile, what is base, what is dishonest, what is unjust, if you're meditating on those things, what I've seen happen and what we have to guard against, and this is what it means to guard our hearts, what I've seen happen is at a certain point we say, it's all the same. And so I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to say anything. There's no point. This is just the real world. It's how the world works. It's how people are. And it's so easy for that to creep in and for us to thereby, after it has crept into our thinking, our reasoning, our affections, for us to grow cold-hearted towards one another. This is one of the saddest, most tragic, most painful consequences of what happened in 2020, what has arguably culminated in 2020, and it's still with us, 
the love of many grew cold, exceedingly cold. There was a lot of hardness of heart in how people related to each other. Say, for instance, if a loved one had passed away or was passing away, there was a lot of coldness towards those family members and loved ones who wanted to be with their loved one as they were passing. They wanted to be with them and comfort them and grieve with them and let them know that they were loved. And the hearts of many grew cold and selfish. And the more that that happened, the more that it was pointed back to by others as something of a foregone conclusion. Of course, that's how we all have to be right now. Everybody's acting like this. Everybody's relating this way. What do you do? By contrast, I would say those who fared best through COVID were, for instance, Christians who kept meeting together, who obeyed God rather than men in assembling together faithfully to encourage, to exhort, to instruct, to build up, to comfort, to fellowship, to praise God together, to thank God together. What were we doing? We were following Philippians, where Paul says, think on these things. It's easier to be pure-hearted when you are meditating on what is pure. It's easier to think on what is praiseworthy and then do what is praiseworthy than it is to be fixed on what is base and how a corrupt and perverse incentive structure might be built up to reward those who do what is evil, like Judas. Judas wasn't doing it for free when he betrayed Jesus. And the fact that he regretted it is no excuse. But what had he done? He had meditated on unjust gain. And it was a habit. It was a pattern. And at a certain point, it became exceedingly easy to betray his Lord and Savior Jesus for the next steal, the next pilfering. Some other instances of the word pure in the New Testament for us to think on, by contrast, 1 Corinthians is a great book. It's a great, great book, but there's a lot of correction. 2 Corinthians verses 11, 2 and 3 Paul says, for I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Pure, pure. All this correction in 1 Corinthians and then in 2 Corinthians, we have the motive we have the reason. We have the explanation. Because Paul wants to present this church in Corinth as a pure virgin to Christ. He wants this church in Corinth to follow sincere and pure devotion to Christ. You know, it's curious because Corinth had a reputation for sexual immorality, faithlessness, unfaithfulness, infidelity, prostitution, every kind of sexual sin. So the idea that the church at Corinth, such were some of you, such were some of you, you were these things, you did those things, past tense, is undergoing a radical transformation and a purification ritual and a cleansing 
by the blood of the Lamb. Through obedience, empowered by the Holy Spirit, faith and grace and love and justice and truth, purity. You know, as I was saying earlier, when people open their hearts, let's say, for instance, Mary is being very open as she breaks this vial of pure nard and anoints Jesus with it. She gets a corrective. Jesus intervenes. Jesus rebukes Judas to say she did the right thing because it's not no big deal. It's not no big deal whether she was doing the right thing in that context. It's very important. It's also very important that Judas not be allowed to present himself as the blameless one. It's very important for the rest of those present to know that Judas is not correct. Now, he's not going to be corrected, but they need to know that this is not okay. And yet, apart from Jesus rebuking Judas right then and there, immediately protecting Mary's heart in some sense, guarding her heart in some sense, Apart from that, it would be very easy for Mary to then, you might say, internalize what had been said. Instead of, I love my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, what it actually is, I I don't care about poor people. And then by turn, I therefore don't actually love Jesus Christ. I don't love Messiah. I don't love the Lord because I don't care about poor people. Insofar as you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me, he said, and I totally missed it. I totally ignored it. Now I feel like an idiot. Now I'm... And what is that? What is that except a snare of the devil? Sometimes that is as bad or worse as the people who say, everything you do is correct and great. And they're flatterers. They tickle ears. They build up self-esteem and they say, Everything you're about, everything you want, everything you love, everything you like, everything you enjoy is quite correct. What is that? That's the abolition of there even being such a thing as pure and impure, righteous and wicked, wise and foolish. No, 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 no. That's lawlessness. It's wicked. But it's arguably as bad or worse. If someone would say, when someone is doing a good thing, oh, that's not really a good thing, actually. And they flex, right? They try to lay down something of a trump card. They try to take something away selfishly, neither from a place of love for God or a place of love for the other person. And what if it actually was a good thing that was being done? You know, I listened back through the previous two episodes of this podcast where I talked about whether God wants us to care about the economy. For instance, that was yesterday's episode. And I also talked about The 5 a.m. Club by Robin Sharma, which, spoiler alert, if you haven't listened to that one yet, I didn't like it. I didn't like that book. It was was a bowl of lucky charms with sour milk. But I talked in both of those podcast episodes about some uncomfortable facts related to economics. For one, I touched on something of a very difficult topic of tithing. And I said, I think the church in America has some soul searching to do in how we approach this question of tithes and offerings. We have some work to do 
as to what the operations of the church actually are and what that means. We don't want to suppose that the ones who are doing full-time vocational pastoral ministry, they are the operations of the church and we pay them to do the work because very quickly, very, very easily that can turn into a passivity for those who are not pastors, those who are not elders, those who are not overseers. And that would not be good. Uh, Also too, it can turn into missed opportunity. If we think we have to keep up with the Joneses, we have to have a pastor for everything. We've got to have a pastor of nursery painting ministries. We've got to have a pastor of breakfast cereal ministries. You know, no, 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 no. No, there is actually a church in this area, by the way. I'm not going to say which one. I'm not going to say the name of it, but we were driving down the interstate on the way back from a baseball game here a couple of months ago. And I saw the church from the interstate and I just thought for anyhow, I'm going to look it up and I'm curious what they're about. They had a hip and trendy name and a nice looking building. You know, I'll give them that. It's a good looking building. But I looked up the website for the church and they had more leaders, directors, pastors of more things than I have ever in my life seen for any church ever, 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 ever. I've never even heard of some of the types of pastors that they had. They had a pastor of connections, and then they had a director of connections, and then they had an assistant facilitator of connections, and then they had one for teaching and one for music, and those are more typical, but they had one for all kinds of weird niche things. And they had some that were pastors and some that were directors and managers. And I thought, well, what's the difference, right? Aren't the pastors managing? Aren't they directing? Who outranks who? Does the director tell the pastor to tell the manager to do something? Or does the pastor tell the director to tell the manager something? Or does, you know, how how does this work? Are they all lateral to each other? This is weird. This is super weird. And the list just kept scrolling. It kept going down and down and down and down and down and down and down. And the more I scrolled, I joked with my wife. I, I said, man, it looks like a good-sized building, but do they have anybody who attends there who's not a pastor, a manager, a director, a leader of some ministry? Like, It's as if the entire congregation is just all of these pastors. If these guys are all on staff, who's paying their salaries? I mean, man alive. And so that's part of where I'm coming from here in pushing back on this idea of the operations of the church being to fund full-time vocational ministry for somebody who's not going to have a day job, particularly going into the economic times that we're going into. We really need to seek the Lord's face and search his word and consider our circumstances. If I'm driving around downtown trying to find a place to park and I'm seeing lots, not a few, lots of homeless people. And then on the way home, I see this church, big, beautiful building. I'm sure it costs a pretty penny. And I look up their website and I'm seeing, I I kid you not, probably a couple of dozen people on staff, uh, probably a few dozen, maybe as many as three dozen. And I think to myself, you mean to tell me 
you have all these homeless people around and y'all have the money to pay this many people. And I don't doubt for a moment that they're all sweet people, talented people, smart people, accomplished, well-educated. They all look very well-educated. Like they either come from wealth in their family or they made their money in the private sector and then joined this church. And then they were recognized as having skills and ability and education. And so, oh yeah, we'll have you be a pastor too. Oh yeah, we'll have you be a director too. Oh yeah, we'll have you be a leader too. We'll have you be a manager too. And what I would hate, I would hate, hate, hate to see is poorer, smaller churches with humbler congregations, less wealth, less material to work with, less surplus in their household budgets, trying to keep up with a church like that. I'm already uncomfortable with the idea that that church is so organized as they are for lots of reasons, but I would hate to see a poorer congregation trying to keep up with that. But then on the other hand, I think to myself, as I'm listening back through these past two episodes where I talked about tithing and I talked about my wife and I having high rent, and I don't want to come across as complaining and grumbling and discontented and murmuring and bitter. I really don't want that to be the case. For one, I don't want to come across that way, but more to the point, I don't want it to be true. Whether I come across that way or not, I don't want that to be true of me. I don't want that, for one, to ruin your day. For another thing, I don't want it to be something that you would internalize and say, oh, well, yeah, that's just how we as Christians talk. No, no. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. That is also very, very much how a Christian talks. And it doesn't mean you do the positive, encouraging, K-love thing where it's all just happiness. It's all just euphemisms. It's all just soft and cuddly and comforting and therapeutic. No, 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 no. Because guess what? You're missing out on a whole lot of what is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise. You're missing out on a whole lot that you can't actually talk about unless you're willing to tell of Judas pilfering the money box and chiming in with a pot shot at Mary, a virtue signaling pot shot at Mary, no less. You can't just tell the story of the pure nard vial being broken and Jesus being anointed by Mary and Mary drying his feet with her hair. You can't just tell that and leave out the unpleasant bit about how Judas will betray Jesus and Jesus knows it and Jesus rebukes him. You can't just leave that out because you don't want to hear it because it's not happy. And that's where we have to build each other up. And we have to remind one another of these things. And we have to do all this at the same time. And that can be difficult. I confess, I admit, I know, I'm feeling it. But what I don't want to do is I don't want to do the Judas thing. Now, I'm not, just to be very clear, I'm not pilfering money boxes. And I'm not trying to virtue signal. But what I mean is I don't want to do the thing that Judas is doing where he says, oh, this money could have been given to the poor, but it was given in devotion to God. And maybe even the Lord put this on Mary's heart, so to speak, because this needed to happen, that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Could it be 
let me just throw this out there. Could it be that I am saying a similar kind of a thing when I see a whole lot of money given to the church to build big, beautiful buildings, modern, clean, sharp, up-to-date, spacious, well-designed. I see all this money being given to that. And there's a part of me that feels guilty that we're so strapped financially, I can't give to that. Or I can't get a home of my own that is also big and beautiful, spacious for my family. Could that be some of what's creeping in? I'm not Judas Iscariot, but then again, we all are tempted in many ways. God forbid I would give into that temptation and it would take a turn to shaming people who are devoting their wealth to God obediently, faithfully. They're doing what God has called them to do, and they're supposed to. I hate the thought that there would be some friend or family member of mine who is in full-time vocational ministry, and they draw a salary. And I've just suggested that no pastors should be drawing salaries because we've got poor people in the community. Ooh, watch out, Garrett. (laughs) Watch out. Because that sounds a lot like what Judas was saying. And he was wrong, which is to say, we can say those kinds of things and also be wrong. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying I'm Judas Iscariot. And I'm not saying somebody who also similarly has these kinds of questions is Judas Iscariot. We are all works in progress and being sanctified day by day if we're in Christ and we have the Holy Spirit. God is continuing to work on us. But 1 Timothy 1.5 says, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And what I want you to know as my listening audience, what I want you to know, what I want to be true is that I ask some of these questions because I want us to do these things from love for God, love for one another, issuing from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith so that we don't get baseless accusations and then get derailed by them because this is a common complaint from those who are not in Christ. Oh, those Christians. Yeah, it's all just megachurch pastors and charlatans and frauds. And yeah, they're telling their poor congregation to give more and more and more all the while they're hopping in a private jet and flying off to another one of their mansions. No, no, no. That's not the rule. That's the exception. And it needs to be corrected and it needs to be rebuked. And if we see it building, we need to stop it. But this idea of a pure heart, that's what we want. And actually, might I just suggest, and I'll leave you with this, and then I've got to run. Might I just suggest that if God can be pleased, if the Lord Jesus Christ can be pleased with pure nard being broken and poured out on his head, when that money could have been given to the poor, sure, yep, absolutely. If if the Lord could be pleased by that, and if it's wrong and it's perverse and it's unkind and it's wicked to rebuke Mary for doing so, well then, someone can, a church can, a body of believers in a community can give generously 
and build a big, spacious, beautiful, well-put-together building in their community to do ministry. They can. Should they? Well, that's the second question. That, that's a, that is an additional and important question. Should they? Maybe. Maybe not. A church can give very generously to the pastor and his family. Salary-wise, they could put together a great benefits package, set them up in a big, beautiful parsonage. I've seen that. And it can come from a pure heart, maybe, possibly, perhaps. And then the question is, but should they, right? Should they do that? And all I would ask, right, going back through reviewing my own podcast episodes, all I would ask is we be mindful, cognizant, attentive to whether we are doing these things from pure motives or from selfish ambition and vain conceit. And yes, absolutely. Also, we have to apply that question to us even asking the question, because that also clearly can come from a place of selfishness, self-promotion, virtue signaling. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. We have church this morning. It's a Sunday morning. I'm going to take my family to church, fellowship with the saints. Hopefully we will edify and be edified and honor the Lord and build one another up, spurring one another on towards love and good deeds. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.